Hello, and welcome to a special post-midterm elections episode of OA On Air. I'm happily joined by a team of our in-house experts and sort of thought leaders here. We've got Suzanne Morse, Ann Murphy, Andy Pavin, Jamie Dunbar, and Ben Josephson. Hello, everyone. Hi, Kayan. Thanks, Kayan. Good morning, Kayan. <laughs> Happy day after elections. <laughs> Happy to you. So a lot happened. There's a lot to digest. We don't have a ton of time. Quick top takeaways. Suzanne. Um, I was really struck that I wonder if we are thinking less about realignment in terms of big picture geography and more about the urban, suburban, rural divide. Uh, a lot of the Democratic pickups were in places like Kansas and Oklahoma, which you wouldn't expect a Democratic pickup, but they were in suburban districts. Well, I think good or bad, uh, Trump energized people to vote, and um, the blue wave resistance movement has gained a lot of steam midterm, but will it continue through the presidential election? Question Remains to be seen. Mr. Paven. I think when you step back and look at last night, most states performed exactly as how you would have expected them to perform based on past performance. You look at Ohio, you look at Missouri, you look at Florida. They all pretty much did exactly what they've done the past four or five cycles. Jamie Dunbar. The biggest takeaway last night, I'm going to stick with one that was a little bit more local, and uh, the great landslide victory by our current uh, incumbent Republican Governor Charlie Baker, but uh, he clearly had uh, little or no coattails across the rest of the uh, uh, ballots uh, throughout there. And so um, what does that mean for the future of, uh, of Massachusetts as a sort of microcosm of uh, what we see nationally? And Ben Josephson. Uh, and I'll pick up on what Andy said, and that is that Democrats in the United States Senate uh, are going to have to figure out a way to defend their incumbents in more red states and or get pickups in the future, or I'm afraid they will be resigned to a permanent minority status. This is not just a 2018 problem. This is, as Andy said, going back especially to 2010. If you look at the loss of Democratic senators throughout states that not just President Trump won, uh, but have been consistently going red in presidential years, uh, very few Democratic senators left uh, in the red portion of the map. I think also we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that there was a big historic victory for a lot of women candidates last night. Um, I think one of our colleagues just mentioned that it was 18 out of 29 of the uh, wins were for women candidates. So it's important to acknowledge that was an important victory. And just to recap for anyone um, listening, so the House took uh, the Democrats took back the House last night. Uh, Senate Senate is still Republican. Um, governors oh, were, so. yeah, more so. <laughs> um, and governorships kind of fell. I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. But the uh, big focus, I think, has been what's going to happen with the House and the Senate. So, and that's a great point, Suzanne. I mean, I, I think the big thing for the new Congress too is, uh, will it be a reushering in of uh, Nancy Pelosi and former leadership? Um, and sort of a, a retread of those folks, or are they going to capitalize mm. on a lot of these great mm. sort of new and exciting wins uh, to bring that momentum-changing Congress uh, that hopefully is more than just a blockade to Trump policies, but really uh, you know puts together some some uh, factors to move the country forward? Yeah, I think that's a real question. But I also think that a lot of the um, voters who push the Democrats into, you know, into the driver's seat now, they are very anti-Trump. Do they want their representative to be that person that does work across the aisle, or do they want someone to be defiant against the, 
the president. Oh, I think it's I think it's pretty clear when you look at this president how he will how he will carry himself in the next two years. There will be rally after rally. It's what he likes. He doesn't like the mundane issues related to legislative passage. And frankly, with the divided Congress now, I don't see a whole lot of legislation moving forward in the, in the next two years. Agreed. You, you heard Mitch McConnell uh, give a little bit of a, of a tip as to how they're going to respond. You heard a new phrase this morning, which was presidential harassment, harassment. Uh, which I believe is an indication of how uh, both the White House and Senate Republicans are going to choose to respond to what you know may be legitimate inquiry coming out of the House. Um, the most powerful man in the world will, will complain about being picked on for the next two years. Right. That's a little bit of working the refs, though, right? I mean, the reality is we know that a big part of what's going to be coming with this new House is investigations, and they want to try and blunt uh, the impact of those investigations by delegitimizing them at the beginning. Yeah, and one of the big questions going forward is exactly that. One thing we saw last night was the degree to which the president's base voters, especially in rural areas, are very much affected by his language, by his words. Um, Looking forward, that says to me it's going to be gridlock and partisanship for the next two years. But I think one good thing is Mitt Romney, our former Massachusetts governor and former presidential candidate, who's now the U.S. Uh, United States Senator from Utah. Uh, I do not think he will be in lockstep with Trump, and I do think that he will make waves, and I think he will call the president out when he feels he should. So uh, I just think it will be very interesting to see Mitt in that uh, in that position as I worked for uh, the Romney campaign when his first um, foray into elected office in 1994 when he ran against Ted Kennedy. and. Um, I, I want to see him as that role. He was he he liked the role of governor, CEO, chief executive. But in the Senate, you are one of many, and you have to deal and wheel. And so it'll be interesting to see. You have to give him credit for persistence. You Twenty-four do have persistence. years later, he finally <laughs> he made it to the Senate. That, he could take the mantra persist as well. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna weigh in on persistence as well, and and something that's also a little close to home is. Um, uh, Democratic candidates for governor had a pretty good night last night, notwithstanding you know some high-profile losses, and that includes um, in Connecticut, where uh, Ned Lamont was going up against a pretty hostile in-state tide uh, with respect to the Democratic Party. But there was a tremendous turnout um, by Democrats in that state, essentially sweeping every race of of consequence and picking up some additional seats in the Senate. But just to to keep it on governors for a second. Uh, historic and very important wins for Democratic candidates for governor across the country, including in states like Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. And these wins will reverberate, especially as it relates to the congressional redistricting process, which will be happening in 2020. So you're going to have, um, at least in many of those states, if not an, an entirely Democratic-led process, at least a bipartisan process, which will uh, smooth out some of the more gerrymandered seats throughout the Midwest in particular that uh, helped propel Republican congressional majorities for the last decade. So I, th I think that's going to be a, a very significant consequence of last night, um, including the fact that these states will have Democratic governors for the 2020 presidential campaign, which is which is a, a quite significant. Speaking of Congress, Ben, that's a really good point in that Massachusetts is going to benefit greatly in this new Congress. We've got uh, long-serving members whose seniority, uh, you know, we're going to see them in very important chairmanships. 
uh, in leadership positions across Congress. And hopefully, no matter what it means for uh, uh, national politics, it certainly means uh, great benefits to, uh, to the Commonwealth here. Um, I think it's also worth talking a little bit about what happened here in Massachusetts. Um, in particular, we didn't have a hugely competitive governor's race, but we did have a couple of interesting ballot measures. Um, and in particular, I think it is really important uh, that Massachusetts um, voted yes on question three, which was about protecting transgender rights in really hugely overwhelming numbers. I think that even though our race, our governor's race wasn't competitive, we still um, demonstrated a trend about protecting uh, minority rights that was really important for us to do. Well, if we're talking about questions and question one, which went down in flames to uh, regulate the um, nursing staff levels. And I just think that all voters have some connection to a nurse, whether it be a family member, whether it be a friend. Obviously, we have all have health care, and you see nurses in your lives regularly. And I think it was so confusing because the mis mixed messages from nurses themselves and from the healthcare community, I think that they kind of, um, I think the voters figured out, you know what, I don't want to have this structured by anyone else other than let the hospitals figure it out. And there were a lot of nurses who were saying no anyway. There was an incredible finish for that ballot question given that almost every poll leading up to that point had the side, had the trend of, of who was going to win change, but they were always within, you know, sort of the 50 mm. uh, percentage points, uh, you know, 50 to 40-something, closer than certainly the outcome ended up being. I mean, it was they And where they started, which but months I, ago, it yeah. was the yeah. complete yeah. opposite. That's right, yeah. I think that speaks to something a little bit structural, and, and, and this is something that we've dealt with on ballot initiatives uh, in the past, and that is when... Ballot initiatives, the no side goes in with a fairly structural advantage. And that is when voters are looking at a question like that, if they're not 100% yes, they're, they're going to be no. And so the- No is the status quo. Yes. And so, and so that side will, I think that's what you see when a question like that goes from more of a toss up or a slight advantage to the no side to an overwhelming no side victory as it was yesterday on question one. I think you're seeing a little bit of that of that structural advantage at play. But, but if we if we step back and look at national, if we have time, there are two ballot measures that, that I think are mm. really worth talking about. One in Nebraska. Nebraska voted to expand Medicaid coverage. Yep, that's true. Proving that maybe it's true that the I thing that was, Republicans really hate about Obamacare is Obama. And I think Utah did the same as well. I think well. Utah did the same as well. I know. And the other And the other referendum that may reshape national politics in this country was a referendum vote in Florida, which reenfranchises mm. felons who have served their sentences and are back as free men and women on the streets. The number that that covers is approximately 9% of the total voting population in Florida. When you look at the past number of cycles where we all know that races have been decided by as few as, what, 23 chads? Um, <laughs> and, the, and the Senate and the... And the uh, and the governor's races last night, the Senate race, race, which is within half a percentage point, is going to recount. Add in 1.6 million voters to that mix. We don't really know how they'll vote. But 1.6 million voters changes the nature yeah, of any state. And it is worth noting, I think I saw a statistic that said that 40% um, of those voters would be African-American men. And so it absolutely will impact, I think, the way Florida politics are shaped. So staying on that for a moment, uh, we're going to look forward in large. 2020, uh, 
two short years away. And I think what we're looking at is Florida, the, the votership could change what that looks like. Um, Beto O'Rourke making a very strong play in Texas says something about where Texas might be in a couple of years and Ohio as well. So when you're looking two years from now, what are we what are we talking about? Well, just re- just really quick, the Democratic shift in Texas that, that drives the change that may be about to happen is, is the same change that the president's base is most concerned about. Mm-hmm. So there will be a lot of energy on both sides of that equation going forward. Yeah, Texas has been, you know, for a couple of decades, the sort of perpetual white whale that will be turning for the Democratic Party. And, you know, we all have to remember George Bush in running uh, for president, I believe, got 40 percent of the Hispanic vote. And in his two campaigns for governor of Texas regularly got a very high percentage of the Hispanic vote. Ted Cruz did the same. So I think even as demographic changes are taking place in Texas, it remains a very, very difficult playing field um, for Democrats there. And I don't think you can just rely on those on those, on those demographics to flip the state. Yeah, scarily, I think Ted Cruz was a victim of a self-inflicted wound by, by the president uh, and, and, and his rhetoric toward Cruz at one time, even though he eventually came around to sort of campaign form, because in the Senate races, um, the president's... Uh, campaigning and stumping and, and rallies seem to sort of carry the day for U.S. Senate candidates. And um, uh, so I think I'm not so sure Texas is the toss-up we think it may be in a few years. But certainly those others you mentioned, Cayenne, are uh, absolutely uh, districts to watch. Ted O'Rourke was a, was a uniquely special candidate. Frankly, Ted Cruz was not a terribly strong yeah. Republican candidate um, and, and still won. I still think Texas is going to be a structurally Republican state in the high single digits for a couple of cycles at least that's, that's probably, to come. That's probably true, but two of the three largest population centers, Houston and Dallas, uh, Republicans lost, incumbent yeah, Republicans lost congressional right. races because of the turnout yep. that, that, the, that the top of the ticket drove. Yeah, and the question is whether or not Democrats are going to be able to sustain that structurally so you know, I think over the next decade. If we're thinking, uh, the, the Texas discussion reminds me a lot of, about the Pennsylvania discussion that Republicans have, which is Republicans always go after Pennsylvania and very rarely win, but they did win in 2016. And I do think that speaks to recognizing the wins that the Democrats had at the governor's level in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania last night. I think it ends up being a mixed picture for 2020 because um, I suspect that Florida stays in the red column and Ohio, it looks like it's going to stay in the red column. Florida stays in the red column with 1.6 million new voters uh, yeah, who, are, who are past convicted felons, who are, of whom are African-American males. Who don't have the uh, voting history. The question is, do they vote? Exactly. Can, can, that's exactly, and that's that a big question. Can you put the 1.6 yeah. million in, in context? If I think, if you look at the spreads last night in both the Senate race and the governor's race, I think it was less than 100,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And if you go back another four years, I mean, mm-hmm. there's you know, going back to 2000, races in Florida are routinely uh, within that margin. Well, and sure. so, adding adding 1.6 sure. million people to the voting rolls, or even if it's half of that. It's going to have a. It's going to have a, a very. I agree, but impact. but you know the only the thing about Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania is. I'm going to you know the metaphor is it's it's Pittsburgh in the west and and, right. and Philadelphia in the east and like Alabama in the center. I mean, Pennsylvania regularly elects Republicans. Mm-hmm. They elect Republican governors. They elect Republicans to the U.S. Senate. Texas has not elected a, a Democrat to statewide office since the 90s, 
at any level. Right. Not for any statewide office. But, so I think so we, I'm not disagreeing. I think Texas does structurally stay uh, red. I also think Florida does. But I think that this whole notion of regaining that kind of iron curtain in the Midwest is an important one for Democrats. Okay. I'm going to bring it back to Massachusetts for two topics. One, and Ben, I'm looking at you. Cannabis is continuing to expand. We did see that happen on local levels, your hometown being one of them. My, my home city of Newton, where my, <laughs> my family lives. Um, they had a very interesting ballot question there last night. I won't get too deep in the weeds, but voters are essentially asked to vote on two questions. Um, as, as listeners may know, the way that uh, cannabis authorization worked in, in the Commonwealth is when we expanded to recreational use uh, two years ago, if your community voted in the majority for that, you essentially were automatically uh, zoned for expansion of, of recreational retail cannabis. Newton, through a city council process, put two questions on the ballot last night. Um, they both failed. So essentially, an attempt to ban it altogether failed, and an attempt to limit it to two to four outlets failed. So it looks like Newton's going to have up to as many as eight uh recreational retail cannabis outlets. There's been a fair, uh, it's an understatement to say that there's been a fair amount of work done on the zoning of those. Uh, Newton has 13 elementary schools, half a dozen middle schools, two high schools. So uh, there's certainly a lot of concern that it's difficult to get to, even in a a city of its size, difficult to get to eight without getting real close to some uh, some of those educational institutions. So before we go, I'm going to bring it back to Massachusetts. We touched upon the delegation, um, what that means, you know, uh, Richie Neal as chair of Ways and Means, for example. We also sent some, you know, new, exciting um, young f- uh, candidates to to D.C. and Ayanna Presley, for example, uh, Laura Trahan, to name a couple. But what does that mean for Massachusetts, our delegation on a national level? I mean, we're going to have more power, um, and, and that's great. But, you know, what is that? If you're the other 49 states, what are you thinking about when you're looking at Massachusetts right now and sort of the, the position we're in? I think I think I just want to add on, on what you said. And a couple of candidates who have not been in Congress um, for terribly long but had a, uh, a tremendous amount of impact, uh, somewhat behind the scenes but somewhat publicly in this last election – And those are uh, Joe Kennedy and Catherine Clark, Mm. the role that they played with recruiting candidates across the country, the role that Seth Moulton played, especially in recruiting veteran candidates across the country, many of whom were successful last night. I think it goes to show that you don't have to be a full committee chairman the way that Richie Neal will be in order to have a huge impact on the process. So I think if you look across Massachusetts, virtually every member of the congressional delegation had a win of some form last night, whether, whether it will be seen in the form of a, of a committee chairmanship or even an important subcommittee chairmanship like what, what Steve Lynch will have, um, or the role that, that some of the other members of the delegation had on the electoral process. You really, Massachusetts, once again, only a, a couple of years after losing some significant chairman, you know, folks like Barney Frank, um, has already kind of very, very quickly recovered its status nationally as, as, as having a real powerhouse and, and delegation. Don't you think that shows too, that uh, Massachusetts has figured out how to continue to be power brokers, right? So we have some old school important chairmanships, but we also do have a young cadre of uh, people in the legislature who are creating these new 
relationships. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Susanna. But I think it also is going to come down to how does this Congress decide to conduct themselves over the next two years? That's yeah, true. Uh, are, you know, if the Democrats are going to show question. what it is that the Democrats can really do, then people are going to look to Massachusetts as the shining star on the hill with uh, some, some great members of Congress. But if uh, it's to uh, do nothing more than simply block uh, what's coming out of the White House, um, you know, they may see that it just we just contribute to the gridlock. Well, and I think there's a final question I'd, I'd, I'd leave with, which is, do Democrats hold a slim majority in the House in 2020, a presidential election year? All right. So thank you, everyone. Final takeaways around the room. We'll go backwards. Ben, <laughs> final takeaways, predictions. What's next? Um, I'll, I'll pick up on what Jamie said. I will predict that the House moves very slowly and very methodically on investigation of the president. I think they're going to allow special counsel to issue uh, his report <clears throat> prior to getting into more aggressive levels of investigation. Wait, special Andy counsel? Bateman. We hadn't even talked about that today. <laughs> um, I think that's There's true. There's so much to unpack. I, I, I think that's true. And, and, and just really quickly before we break, I think the biggest news of last night was Florida. Regardless, the, the, both statewide Democratic candidates lost. I think the, the, the re-enfranchisement of 1.6 million people is a really big deal. I think, secondly, the biggest question on the table continues to be, what comes of the special counsel investigation? I think after a few yeah. years of trepidation, I'm really excited for Massachusetts, at least, between uh, the mo one of the most popular governors in, in the United States uh, uh, returning for another four years, and then uh, right down to our delegation, again, between the seniority and, and being back in uh, the majority. I think uh, great things are to come for, for Massachusetts. Uh, I, I think that it's going to be a very interesting time in Massachusetts for the Republican Party itself because you have a highly successful and popular governor who won Democrats and you know, independents. But what does the mass GOP do now because they have not made any progress really or they don't have a lot of traction. So that'll be interesting to see what they do. And Suzanne? Um, my final takeaway is feeling optimistic after a couple of years of real pessimism and feeling like Things like checks and balances and um, oversight are really important, and I'm, I'm happy to see that we're moving in that direction. Thanks, everybody. Happy uh, day after midterm elections. Thanks, Diane. <laughs>So that's it for our post-2018 midterm elections rundown. Thanks to our panel of experts here at O'Neill & Associates for joining us. To learn more about our panelists, go to O'Neill & Associates.com. Thanks for tuning in.